0: Well, we've been visiting some mountaintops over these last few weeks. Several months ago, the Lord began stirring in my heart and uh, really said, visit the mountaintops, Tom. Take the people on a tour of the mountaintops, which didn't sound all that interesting to me in the beginning. I'll have to be honest with you, but it's gotten more interesting as I've followed the Lord through this. And I've seen some people get touched by some of this stuff that we've been bringing. Um, This is week five out of eight, and the first week was Mount Moriah. When the near sacrifice of Isaac with A- by Abraham, and we learned that there's always blessing. Where? On the other side of obedience. Say it together, church. No, I said say it together, church. It together, good. Okay, so there's always blessing. There's always blessing on the other side of obedience. If God's calling you to do something, he's calling you to be closer to him. As you get closer to him in your life, you just live under a greater blessing, irrespective of whatever circumstances you're living in. I'm not promising you're going to get rich or you're going to get a better husband. I'm just saying, I, I'm just saying you're going to live a blessed life, okay, you're going to, because you're living closer to the Lord. The second was we, was Mount Sinai, when God poured out the Ten Commandments. That's not about bondage. That's not about law. The treasure we came off of that mountaintop was simply this, is that God brings order out of chaos. God brings order. They were living in chaos. God sent the Ten Commandments. It brought order out of chaos. The difference between the opening verses of Exodus and the closing verses are stark. God wants to bring order out of your chaos. You do not have to live in chaos. That's the enemy's plan for you. Third week was Mount Nebo where Moses was up and he was looking across the, over to the promised land that he didn't get to go to, but Mount Nebo. Very cool. And uh, we saw that it's really God's heart to guide every authentic believer by a clear and compelling sense of vision. God has a plan for your life. He has a vision for you to follow. It's not just for the trained professionals like myself. It's for every single one of us. Every single one of us. You've got to believe that. It starts by believing it. It starts by embracing the truth of the Scripture. Last week it was Mount Carmel and that big showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and we came off of that mountaintop with this treasure, that God will always be there when you need Him. God will always be there when you need Him. The greater the risk, the greater the manifest presence of God in our lives. Today I want us to move on to Mount Zion. What, Mount Zion? Uh. Mount Zion, what is it? An elevation contained within the present-day city of Jerusalem. I've never been to Jerusalem. Many of you have. You've you got me beat on this. I've only read the travel brochure. Some of you have been there. Some of you have seen Mount Zion. A certain part, certain elevation within the present-day city of Jerusalem. It was the site of the original city of David. All right. So where David built the city, part of it, part of Jerusalem, was the city of David. It was fortified on one side, a steep bank on one side. Eventually, it was included, expanded to include all of Jerusalem, so as to encompass the temple. So, the temple, which we saw before, may well have been built on Mount Moriah, which is a very cool connection um, within Jerusalem. And remember, when we talk about mountains, we're, ta- we're talking about mounts at this point. We're talking about elevations, right? You know, uh, what's what's a mountain to one person is a hill to another. And so, when we talk about these things, we're not necessarily talking about Pikes Peak. We're talking about elevations. And so uh, the Temple Mount was in Jerusalem, of course, flowing, I guess, from this, for i read from the brochure, flowing from the south of the, te- of the Temple Mount is Mount Zion, uh, the city of David, if you will. Um, it Eventually, this whole Mount Zion thing evolved into a symbolic reference to the place, any place really, where God meets with his people. And so Zion, Zion is the place where the people meet with God. So you're getting this? That Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the place where the people meet with God. The temple was the place where people meet with God. Well, as all that expanded, and as Jesus came and fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, gave his life, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, opened the door for us, then Jesus said, you know, I'm going to be wherever two or more of you come in my name, right? That's Zion in that sense. So Zion, if you will, is here today today. To the extent that you release your faith in worship. Now, now if you stand there and watch the clock go by, it ain't Zion. It's just Grove City, all right? (laughs) But to the extent that you release your faith in worship and say, God, I want you, I want to experience you, I'm coming to you in the name of your son Jesus, then this actually becomes, in a very real sense, the understanding of Zion. Zion, Mount Zion, was the place where people meet with God. Lots of references to it throughout the Old Testament in particular. I want us to look at Psalm 48, if you will. Psalm 48 in your Bibles. If you're newer to the Bible, uh, psalms are right in the middle. starts with a P, I know. It sounds like it should start with an S. Psalm, which means songs. There are 150 of them. These were worship songs, by and large, sung by the people of Israel to God. This Psalm 48 says a song, a psalm... Of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. There you go. We're going to be talking about a mountain, it says in Psalm 48. It's beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. And so there's something about this mountain that he's about to describe for us in Psalm 48 that's beautiful. And it's the joy, it's the central place of the whole earth. He said it's a focal point of something important. And then he says something interesting, like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Zaphon was the mountain about 30 miles away where the Baal worshippers worshipped Baal. Okay, I don't like it at all that he says, like the utmost heights of Zaphon. I wish he had said greater than the utmost heights of Zaphon. But what he's doing is he's drawing people in, I think. He's drawing people into the message of this, saying, you know how Zaphon is meant to be a holy mountain? Where people worship Baal? Well, so it is. So is this mountain I'm about to tell you about. This is Mount Zion, he says, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. See, the presence of God is there, he's saying. He has shown himself to be her fortress. The city of David, uh, and I looked at some pictures of this, it's very steep on one side. It's all fortified with stones and has been, and they've done, uh, uh, as you can imagine, an endless number of digs throughout there to understand its history through the various ages of development and it's always been always been a fortified uh, tough uh, tough to conquer city because of its positioning in the uh, you know and the topography there and he says, God is in her citadels. God's there. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the, here, when the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. They went like, I don't even think so. You know, We were going to take this city. Now that I see it, not such a good idea. Couldn't we get some intelligence on this? Couldn't somebody have told us that this is not a conquerable city? They saw and they fled in terror, trembling, seized them there, pain like that of a woman in labor. Interesting analogy. I don't know. You destroyed them like the ships of Tarshish shattered by an east wind. Big story, don't have time for it. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. So this Mount Zion, presence of God, place of safety. God protects you when you're in Zion. God makes you safe in this reality. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever, and he will guide even to the end. So, Mount Zion. There's a description in Psalm 48. Mount Zion, this place where people meet with God. Now, I told you that at the top of each of these mountains is a treasure for us and reviewed them for us so far. And some of you are maybe getting a little ahead of me and going, well, I think I know what the treasure of Mount Zion is then. Surprise. I think if you're thinking the treasure of Mount Zion is that God wants to make a place to meet with us, that would be reasonable, that'd be logical. But it's not what I got as I was preparing. It's not as I got as I was listening to the Holy Spirit this week and saying, Lord... That makes sense to me, but I just had this compelling stirring inside of me that there was another word for us. That's a treasure, to be sure, that God wants to meet with us. But is it the treasure that God wants for this church, for your heart, your mind, your life today? And the answer was no. What is the treasure of Mount Zion? Well, for our purposes, the treasure of Mount Zion is not found within the psalm. It's found in the introduction to it. It says, A psalm of the sons of Korah. How many of you, like me, you've seen that before and you've just like blown by like, oh, who the heck cares who the sons of Korah are? Come on, raise your hand. Me too, I know. And the Lord drew me, said, a psalm, that's where the treasure is. A psalm of the sons of Korah. There are 25 psalms that have that in the introduction. 25 of the psalms. Some of the, some of the well-known psalms. The Lord is my refuge and my strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. Have you heard that before? Sons of Korah. Okay. Be still. And what? Know that I'm God. Sons of Korah. Hey, these people are somebody. They're catching on, right? We, we know their verses. Sons of Korah. Who were they? Sons of Korah were worship leaders in the house of David. The sons of Korah were worship leaders in the house of David. David was the author of most of the psalms. The sons of Korah were his worship leaders. The sons of Korah were the ones who would lead assemblies in singing the songs of David, and then also had their own songs. They also obviously had their own songs. Twenty-five of them made it into the book. Okay. These, these are the sons of Korah. Well, where did they come from? And how do they represent the treasure of Mount Zion? Well, let's ask the question. Who is Korah? Well, thank you. Thank you for asking. Who is Korah? Korah was the grandson of Koath. Ah. Levites. Have you heard of them? Levites. Levi, Levites. Levites were the descendants of Israel who were charged with the keeping of the tabernacle. They didn't have an inheritance in the land. They had several cities throughout the land, but there's no piece of property with their name on it. Their inheritance was the Lord. Their inheritance was to take care of the tabernacle. Now I've joked before that the tabernacle which came before the temple, I've joked that it was like the tent camper version of the t- of the temple, but it was really a mammoth thing. It was a very big thing. And there was a lot to moving it. Because these people were on the move, were they not? The Levites were responsible for moving it. They had no other job. It was a big job. There were three divisions of Levites. One of the divisions actually took care of the tent part of it, which you can imagine came in sections, huge sections, which had to be folded and cared for, constructed, reconstructed as they moved. Another division cared for all the posts and the beams and the braces. I don't know if you've ever seen a big tent, but there's a lot to this stuff, right? Now, a third division, then, took care of the articles of the sanctuary. Have you heard of the Ark of the Covenant? Raise your hand if you've heard of it, okay? The lampstands, these various things that you read through the Old Testament are part of the tabernacle. The third division took care of those. They were the Kohathites. Koeth, okay? Koath was the leader of this whole, was the first one of these, this generation. So the Koathites took care of all of the items of the sanctuary. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting. The other two divisions were allowed to use carts and oxen and everything else to move their stuff. So they had, a, you know, the, the technology of the day, they had it figured out how they could do it the easiest possible way. If you read in the Book of Numbers, you see that the Kohathites, who were moving the articles of the sanctuary, had to wrap it very carefully in certain cloth, certain fabric, and carry it on their backs in the hot Palestinian sun. They couldn't use a pole. They couldn't use a cart. They couldn't use a number. There were very. Uh, in other words, it was a it was a hot job. Now this went on for a couple generations. By the time you get to Korah, Korah goes, "This sucks," and so he enlists 250 people to to try to stage this coup against Moses. And here's how the coup goes: It goes, "Who do you think you are, Moses? We're out here working in this hot sun. We're out here working in this hot sun." And you, you're walking around like some kind of God big shot saying, thus saith the Lord. I like your job better than my job. I want your job. And you would have thought, you would have thought that this Korah would have learned from the experience of Moses' sister Miriam, uh, or Korah, uh, yeah, Korah, uh, when she tried to oppose Moses. You know that in Numbers 12? I love that passage. Miriam, Moses' sister, comes to Moses and complains against him. And the scripture says, because he had taken a Cushite wife. Now Cush, as you know, in northern Egypt, that's going to be a very dark-skinned person. And so, Mo- so Miriam was all upset that Moses had taken a dark-skinned wife. And said, hmm, that ain't right. That ain't right. You shouldn't be doing that. I have a real problem with that. And so she made her complaint to God. And God said, Oh, I love God's response. I love it. God says, Oh, you like white? You like fair skin? Oh, we can, we can remedy that. And it said, He made her leprous, white as snow. There's a form of leprosy that some of us have seen when we travel to India under the leper colony in Bargur, where all the pigmentation is gone. And so our Indian friends, who are normally darker skinned than me, I'm a little red today, I got a sun yesterday. But I'm pretty hopelessly white in general, you know. But there's a form of leprosy where the pigmentation is gone. And God says, oh, you like white? I'll make you white. She was leprous. Lost the pigmentation. skin. I love the statement that God's making, don't you? I love the statement that God's making. That in heaven there is one nation, one tribe, one tongue, one people. That God, you know, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Get over it, people. Get over it. Well, you would have thought that Korah would have learned from that, but he didn't. So he takes on Moses, takes on Moses, gets 250 of his friends. And he says, look, I think we could do your job better than you. Maybe you ought to take your turn carrying this stuff around, basically, is how it goes. Moses says, I, here's what I propose. If what you're saying is true, if God has not called me to do what I'm doing, and you to do what you're doing, then if, that is, if that's not true then you will live a normal life and you will die a natural death. But if it's true that I am called to do what I am doing and you are wrong in what you're saying, let something we have never seen happen before right now. As he said that, the words had hardly trailed out of his mouth and the earth opened up and swallowed up Korah and the 250 malcontents with him and closed up over them. This is Korah. Seven or eight generations later, we have these sons of Korah who are now elevated in the house of God to a position of worship. What is my point? My point is this that there's always forgiveness available in the Lord. Listen, you say, I know that. Do you? This name, Sons of Korah, would have been a name, even after these many generations, would have been despised by the Jews. They are the ones that God swallowed up. Stay away from the Sons of Korah. They are like lepers. Stay away from them. They're no good. Stay away from them. They're unsavable. God not only rescued them, but God elevated them to the place of worship leaders in the house of David. God not only forgave them, but he redeemed them. God not only redeemed them, but he restored them. God not only restored them, but he exalted them. And that's the message of God. You see, God not only wants to forgive you of your sin through his son, Jesus Christ, he wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem you. Not just forgiveness like, you know, okay, we're even, go away. But he wants to redeem you. Redeem you as a son, a daughter. And in redeeming you, he wants to restore you. Restore you to his house. Restore you to relationship with him. Restore you, not as a slave, but as a son. And in restoring you, he wants to exalt you. He wants to invite you to his table. This is the process of God. This is the way of God. Those who were once condemned... Were restored and elevated to the place of high service of worship leaders in the house of the Lord. So what's the treasure of Mount Zion? The treasure of Mount Zion, I think, is simply this. Redeemed sinners make the best worshipers. Redeemed sinners make the best worshipers. Redeemed sinners make the best worshipers. And the more deeply a person was involved in sin before they came to Christ, the better worshiper they become. Redeemed sinners make the best worshipers. That's the treasure of Mount Zion. Check out Jesus on this subject. Look at the disciples he called and the friends he kept company with. (laughs) Redeemed sinners make the best worshipers. The most extensive conversation about worship that Jesus ever had with a person was a Samaritan woman who had been married five times. Redeemed sinners make the best worshipers. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee says, Oh God, I'm glad I'm not like this poor slob and all of his sin. And the poor slob, the tax collector, says, Oh God, I'm broken Forgive me. And which one did Jesus prefer? (laughs) The poor slav on the ground. Because redeemed sinners make the best worshipers. In Luke chapter 7, there is a prostitute who is washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Wiping his feet with her hair. Jesus said this woman will be remembered for all generations. Why? Because redeemed sinners... Make the best worshipers. You get that? That's the treasure of Mount Zion. These sons of Korah, they were redeemed sinners. They were cursed because of their father. They were cursed because of a generation before them. Sound familiar? Anybody read Genesis 3? whole Adam and Eve thing? We are cursed because of a generation before us. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're restored. We're restored to sonship in the house of God, were exalted. What a difference. This is the treasure of Mount Zion that redeemed sinners. Make the best worshipers. I took the picture, I took what I think is the perfect picture of the treasure of Mount Zion right here on our property this week. Some of you know that there's a, we have 18 acres here and there's a path that goes around it. We call it the wall. It's a great place to pray. We just go out there and Pray. And there's a little place out there. See that little white building? Some of you have looked out there, and what's that? They store like the lawnmower in there? What? That's called the hiding place. It's the first thing we built on this property when we bought this place, bought this land. And it's just a little 11 by 13 place where you can go in and pray. That's what it's for. It's just a prayer shack. It's the shack, sometimes we call it. Some of you have been in there. A few of us go out there, and we just pray. I, I tend to get this on this wall about every day and just go out there and pray. Pray for the church. Pray whatever God wants me to pray. And this is the path going out there. And I was really struck when I was going out there this week. This was on Friday, just two days ago. And I was walking out there, and the Lord spoke to my heart. And he goes, there's a picture of Mount Zion right there. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you see where you meet me back here in this tent of meeting, this hiding place? He said, you see what's lining the path? What's lining the path? Dandelions dandelions. Now you need to know something about Karen and me. We love dandelions. We love dandelions. I know they come and crowd out the grass. I know I get all that. But we both just love the looks of dandelions. And we love it every spring when they come charging in. And the meaning of this, those beautiful flowers that line the path goes like this. What some people consider to be weeds, Karen and I consider to be beautiful. What some people consider to be weeds, worthless, Karen and I consider to be nothing short of beautiful. You'll get along a lot better in this church if you're a weed and not a nice piece of grass. I've seen the grass come, they come in They like something or another about it. They don't last. Too many weeds in this place. Too many dandelions. Look. Newsflash. Dandelions. I'm not trying to make you into grass. I'm not trying to make you into grass. I'm just trying to help you become an incredible dandelion. Because redeemed sinners make the best worshipers. We have the tables set up, tables of communion today. This is Jesus saying, I'm here. Come and worship me. Come and experience me. You have to be have your act all together. I hope not. What do you have to do then? You mean my sin's okay? No, your sin's not okay. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. But you're still a dandelion. So am I. (laughs) And so we come to these tables and we say, Lord, I want to experience you. I want to experience the fullness of what you have for me. I come and I confess my sin to you. I recognize I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I recognize that. I confess my sin. I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. I want to live without sin, but I still just want to live authentically as the person you've made me to be. So as you come to this table this morning, I'd like you to do this, and you're all welcome. You're all welcome. You say, Tommy, you don't understand what kind of week I had. Maybe you should lead the way. Maybe you should come first. But as you come to the table, could you just come and thank God for the forgiveness that's in your life because of Jesus? Thank God that for all the failures of your life, they're covered by the blood of Jesus, by the power of what he did for you on the cross. And will you allow something to happen? Will you consider just allowing yourself to go from being forgiven to being redeemed? take you from being redeemed to being restored I'll take you as my son I'll take you as my daughter and from going from restored to being exalted and just answering that stirring inside you hear the Lord saying come close sit at my table Father we just bow now and uh, thank you for these elements these simple elements of the bread and the cup and the power of what they represent Lord, we know that there is no priest on earth who could do anything about these elements for us. But we know that there is a priest in heaven, Jesus. Who by coming in his name can transform this somehow mysteriously into his very body and blood. And so we come to you and come to these tables, not lightly, but confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But also rejoicing that What Jesus has done for us, he has done for us. And it's done. I thank you for each person here, Lord. I thank you for each person, everyone. I thank you for the ones who've been here a long time. You know, maybe they know how to stand a little taller as dandelions, but still pretty much dandelions. I thank you for every person here. I thank you for those who are here brand new. The blessing of the Lord fall on them. But as we come to these tables, Lord, I just pray that you'll somehow touch us Touch us now. In the name of Jesus.